Let's bow our heads for prayer as we get ready to open God's word together. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for bringing us safely together this Sabbath morning. I thank you that we have a heritage, an avenous heritage that we can reflect on to see that we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but that we are standing on the more sure word of prophecy. And Lord, today, as we think practically how we can wait for your return, I pray, Lord, that you will speak to us. May the Holy Spirit lead us into all truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see if my clicker works, gentlemen. My sermon is, my slides are here. There we go. The title of our message today is Wait on the Lord. Have you ever had to wait? Last week, my wife and I and our kids, we were in the car. We were driving home, and uh, we were supposed to get on the freeway to get home. You know how the on-ramp sometimes, you're on the overpass, and you can see the road, the freeway, before you get on the on-ramp. Well, it was one of those instances, and I saw the traffic backed up as far as the eye could see. So I made an executive decision. I said, I'm not getting on that freeway. Who's got time to sit in traffic? Some of you gentlemen know where this story's headed already. So I pulled, made a right turn into a parking lot, whipped out my GPS to see if there's a faster way. Any of you do, do this before? Any of you regret doing this before? Right, you don't have to raise your hand. I looked at the GPS, and sure enough, the GPS said, nope, the shortest way is back on the freeway. And so I thought, all right, let's just go, go with that. So I'm sitting at the red light. It's just like a left turn, and then the on-ramp is right there. You can imagine it in your mind's eye. 30 seconds go by. A minute goes by. Two, three, four, five, six minutes go by. It might have been seven. And the light was still red. My blood pressure is rising. The veins are bulging out of my head. I'm thumping the steering wheel. And my wife says, why don't you just make a right turn? I know what I'm doing, woman. So I make the right turn, and, I'm tur- and now I'm facing all this oncoming traffic, and I have to make a left turn or a U-turn to get around, and I'm stuck in the median waiting some more. I managed to get into the parking lot on the left side, and now I have to wait for another right turn, and by this point, my hair's on fire. Eventually, we get back on the freeway. And with a sigh, I said, well, there goes 10 minutes of my life I'm never getting back. My wife, always there to keep me on the straight and narrow, says, well, at least we weren't in a hurry to get anywhere. And then I realized, but I am preaching a sermon on waiting next week. And so if you feel like this sermon is intended to point at you, just know God laid this burden on me for me, all right? But I think that illustrates the point, right? We live in a society now in which waiting is almost always considered a bad thing. We have Amazon Prime syndrome. If a package that we order online is not on our doorstep, within two days, something's wrong. 
We live in an instant society. Email is too slow. So we've got what's called instant message. An instant message hitting your computer is just not fast enough. Hitting your phone, too slow. It's got to get on your watch. Pretty soon, they're going to have to beam us straight into our brains. Before you think it, we're going to give you the instant message. And who's got time to sit around cooking a pot of pasta for 10, 15 minutes? We need instant noodles. Got to be under two minutes flat, right? All the college students know what I'm talking about. Oh, and then there's everyone's favorite appliance, the Instant Pot. (laughs) I can't knock that one. With all the beans us vegetarians eat, right? It's like a time machine. Who's got time for a slow cooker? Because they're just so slow. It's in the name. Instant Pot, instant message, instant noodles. We got our phones with 3G. No, that's too slow. 4G, that's outdated. We need 5G now. Every iPhone has to be faster. Every car we buy has to be faster than the last one. We're in such a hurry. However, one of the secrets to the Christian's strength, one of the secrets to a powerful Christian experience is knowing how to wait. Specifically, how to wait on the Lord. And today I want to spend some time discussing, investigating this idea with you through the story of Elijah. Elijah, and you might be thinking now, that's an odd choice for a Bible character. He's not like a Job or John waiting on Patmos or some other character that's associated with being patient. Elijah is one of those move fast and break things type of Bible characters. But uh uh-huh. Why was he able to do so much for God? It was because he learned how to wait. So let's turn our attention now to the Bible, where we are introduced to Elijah the prophet. 1 Kings chapter 17, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Kareth, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Kareth, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometimes in our Christian experience, we see the doors of God's providence flinging open at every turn. The wind is at our back. We see miracles left and right, so much so that ravens are bringing us food. You ever had this experience? Where it's like you are just in sync with God. Your morning devotions are just exactly what you needed for the day. Your prayers seem to have answers just instantaneously almost. And God is like walking right next to us. We feel his presence close. But that's not how we always feel in the Christian experience, is it? Are there not also times where God calls us to retreat and to sit by the brook and wait? 
When we think about waiting, it's easy to wait when we are laying in our warm bed and our down comforter on a Sunday morning, waiting for someone to serve us breakfast. <laughs> that kind of waiting is nice. But we all know that when we think about waiting on God, it's quite the opposite. Waiting on God invariably seems to come with anxiety and stress and challenges and questions and difficulty, right? Because the brook careth itself has an interesting definition. The word careth literally means cutting, cutting. And if we read the very next verse in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 7, and it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So Elijah, hearing the word of the Lord whispering in his ear, telling him every move, whether to turn left or to right, what to say, what to do, all of a sudden finds himself sitting next to a drying brook. Sometimes God sends us to the mountaintop. Sometimes he sends us through the valley of the shadow of death. And here, Elijah had to learn an important lesson that we also must learn. And that is that before we can stand on the peak of Mount Carmel, we must learn to sit and wait by the drying brooks. Perhaps for us. We've been waiting for a spouse while the years roll by and our youth is drying up. Maybe for those of us who are married, waiting for a child when the pregnancy just won't happen and our fertility is drying up. For those of us who feel the call to move to the country and to buy a home of our own and we see the economy taking twists and turns and interest rates going up in the housing market in disarray. We find our finances are drying up. Waiting for justice when we have been wronged. Waiting for vindication for our name while our hope is drying up. Waiting to hear the prognosis of a dreaded disease while our health and strength dries up. Or waiting while our children runs to the world or waiting in a marriage that is unhappy and full of strife, we find our relationships drying up. The brooks careth in our lives may dry up, but it may well be that God has a Mount Carmel yet in your future that he's preparing you to stand upon. And before that day, we must be willing to go through the cutting experience of the drying brooks. Because, because even in the natural world, even in our day-to-day -day experiences, that work of preparation and refinement takes time. There's waiting involved. Even the most amazing artists have to allow the paint to dry on the canvas. Pottery must cure in the oven. Bread must be allowed to rise. Precious metals must be refined in the heat of the furnace. And it is tempting 
while we go through those refinement experiences by our individual drying brooks to think perhaps God has left us. But there is this statement I want to share with you that ought to encourage us today. Found in Ministry of Healing, page 471. The fact that we are called upon to endure trials shows that the Lord Jesus sees in us something precious which he desires to develop. If he saw in us nothing whereby he might glorify his name, he would not spend time in refining us. He does not cast worthless stones into his furnace. It is valuable ore that he refines. So quite the contrary, rather than evidence that God has left us, the fires of the trials and the drying brooks is evidence that God sees in us something valuable, something of worth that ought to be refined in us. And so Elijah, sitting there, probably not knowing that this was the experience that he was going through, perhaps he has some questions. If it were me, I know if I was sitting next to the drying brook, Kareth, I'd be thinking to myself, hmm, maybe I need to help God out. Because this little trickling brook, the water level's been going down every day, but the Jordan is right over there. I can just sneak over there, maybe just at night, get, a wa- get my water and come back. You know what I'm talking about. When things are inconvenient, when we're sitting and waiting and God has not apparently answered our prayers, we are tempted to take matters into our own hands, to institute our own plans and our schemes. And how often do we dig ourselves into a deeper hole because of our own devices? When God asks us to wait, it's best that we wait. Because who knows? For Elijah... It may well be that in trying to have his little excursion to get his water from the Jordan, it may be that he finds himself right in the crosshairs of Ahab and his troops. If we are trying to help God too much, we might help ourselves right outside the circle of God's divine protection. But perhaps sitting by the drying brook, Elijah finally starts to hear word of what's going on in the nation the beloved nation of Israel that he's trying to reform through his ministry. And he hears about the livestock that's dying in the famine. His fellow countrymen suffering from hunger, their businesses failing, people dying from starvation. And it is possible, it is tempting to think, I know if it were me, to think, why did I start all of this? Maybe it's all my fault. The doubt and the regrets being whispered into the ear by the deceiver. Because how often it is that the brooks in our lives don't start drying up until we choose to do what's right. If I had, been, if I had just continued studying on Sabbath, I would have passed the exam and I'd be in that program today. If I hadn't been so strict on my Sabbath observance... I wouldn't have lost that job, and now my, my kids are going to go hungry. If I had been a little less strict about my religion, maybe I would have been married by now. And who cares if it's not an Avenist? At least I wouldn't be alone. The temptation and the doubts, maybe if I wasn't so strict about family worship or being on church on time or being active for God's ministry, maybe my kids will still be in the church. 
the questions, the doubts, when the brooks dry up, in consequence, it seems, from when we choose to do what's right, Elijah struggling perhaps with those questions. But a helpful reminder for us today is that God is rarely early, but never late. So the questions that we seek answers to may not have an answer right now. There may be a delay, but if we choose to extract ourselves out of God's plan, we may not hear the answer. In the case of Elijah, at the appointed time, some years later, he was called to stand upon Mount Carmel. Yes, I know, I'm skipping through his story. He had the experience with the widow of Zarephath. But eventually, he stands on Mount Carmel, and after that experience, God not only answered his prayer to replenish the drying brooks, but he used Elijah to bring about a magnificent revival of the entire nation. And you see, when we sometimes find ourselves waiting and waiting, and it seems like the answer just never comes, we have to remember that God has an interesting way of bringing about very rapid resolutions. It could be that after preaching for 120 years, a flood comes to engulf the whole earth in a matter of days. It could be that after generations of waiting for the Messiah, one quiet night, a baby's born in the manger and he's here. It could be we pray for years, decades even, for a loved one, a family member, a friend. And when the moment is right, a conversion takes place seemingly overnight. It could be that we're asking, Lord, send me where you want me to go. I'm tired of my career. I'm ready to move out in the country. I'm ready to give my life to you. And it seems like nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. And then all of a sudden, bang, 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 within weeks, your entire life has changed. But those resolutions never happen if we're not willing to wait. If we're impatiently running before God, it may never come. And yes, Elijah stands on the Mount Carmel. He, in a showdown with 450 of Baal's prophets, and we usually think, oh, wow, this is the climax of Elijah's story. This is the mountaintop. Well, actually, if you read the rest of Elijah's story, this is like maybe halfway. What comes after, I think, is actually just as fascinating. And that's actually where we're going to turn to now. What happens after Mount Carmel? 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Also, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So what happens? Elijah calls fire down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the water in the ditch. You remember that story? He prays. It rains. Actually, before that, he, uh, he puts all of the prophets of Baal to death. And then he runs a marathon back to Jezreel in front of the chariot of the king. 
And here he is, getting ready to lay down to sleep after an exciting and exhausting day. And ding, 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 he gets an instant message on his phone. Maybe it was a tweet or a Facebook message or maybe it was an Instagram DM. I don't know what it was, but Jezebel managed to send a message. It might have been a headline news. And he, he says, what's going on? Jezebel wants my head. What happens next? What does Elijah do? And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. A little threat from Jezebel and Elijah. The champion of God who just took down 450 prophets of Baal, tucks his tail between his legs, and he runs. Perhaps more importantly is what he forgot to do. He forgot to wait. Up to this point in Elijah's experience, we see, and the word of the Lord came unto him, the word of the Lord came unto him, the word of the Lord came unto him, and that's how he ordered his life. All of a sudden, the word of Jezebel came unto him, and everything goes out the window. And Elijah is actually guilty of some tremendous failures. Because he had just instituted the largest and most sweeping revival in the nation of Israel that they have seen in generations. He had just wiped out the entire priesthood of Baal. He's, he's got a clean slate. The people are on his side. Fresh in their mind is the miraculous answer to prayer with the fire coming down from heaven. And some scholars go so far to say that it is conceivable that if this revival and reformation that was instituted by Elijah was able to be carried forward without interruption, it might have prevented the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities altogether. The opportunity lost because of his abandonment of his post would never come again. The cost, the price of a simple failure, quote-unquote simple failure, could not be measured. When we think about it, is it easier to fall when we're climbing up the ladder or when we're standing on the very top rung with nothing to hold on to. You see, Elijah found himself standing on the tippy top of the pinnacle of achievement and success, where the air got thin and the wind blew stronger and the footing got shakier. And we often think, ah, the training by the br drying brook is to allow him to get to the top of the mountain I say, is to prevent the rapid descent on the other side. The training by the brook is not for the caramel experience itself, but what comes after. Because the temptation for us to forget God and to not wait on Him is far greater. When we have achieved everything, when everything seems to be going well, when success is in our grasp, and here Elijah fell in such a manner that the cost cannot fully be estimated. 
What if Elijah could have finished the Reformation that day? Who knows what might have been. But let's tap the brakes a little bit. I may be a little bit hard on Elijah because let's remember what the New Testament tells us about him. In the book of James, chapter 5, verse 17, the King James puts it this way. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. The New King James puts it this way. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like us. He was not some superhuman endowed with some different DNA. So what does that mean? My application is, if I were in his shoes, I don't think I should expect to do much better. Let's rewind a little bit, and let's just think about Elijah. In what condition was he when he ran away from Jezebel? He had been a fugitive for the last three and a half years. He was on Israel's most wanted list, his face plastered on every wall. There was probably a gigantic bounty on his head. Can you imagine living under that kind of stress? And then on Mount Carmel itself, the entire day, it was one. Him versus the hundreds of others, the prophets of Baal. He had no one in his corner. And he's watching the prophets of Baal as they were cavorting around their, their altar, realizing that if they were able to sneak a little bit of fire in, his life would be over instantly. He had to prevent any shenanigans from happening. He's probably not eaten. He's not drinking anything. He prays for rain. And in the monsoon, he runs a marathon in front of the king's chariot back to his castle. This man is utterly spent emotionally, physically. His adrenaline has probably, like his adrenal glands are about to explode. I can't imagine what this man was going through. And in this condition of utter physical, emotional exhaustion, he failed. I can't excuse the failure because the Bible doesn't excuse his failure. But at least we can understand. We can have an explanation as to perhaps what might have made him lose his nerve in that moment. No sleep, no food, no water, no friends, elevate a sense of stress, no wonder. Elijah fell into a deep sense of depression. Within a matter of days, he's asking God to take his life. I might say, even say that he was fully clinically depressed. And so he asked God to take his life. But how does God respond instead? Let's take a look. First Kings. Chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So did God hear his prayers? But did God answer his prayer? I say praise God for unanswered prayers sometimes. Amen? Elijah prayed that God 
please, just take my life. I can't take it anymore. Instead of giving in to what Elijah was asking for, God instead gave Elijah what he actually needed. You see, Elijah was a prophet of God to whom much is given, much is required. We understand that principle. But nevertheless, God is merciful and long-suffering to us, understanding our weak and feeble frame. He looked at Elijah as a man subject to like passions as we are, and what did he do for him instead? Well, he put him through a depression and recovery program. He sends an angel to touch him, to speak a gentle word of sympathy to him and emotional support. He gives him food, nourishment, and nutrition. He gives him water, hydrating him. He lets him sleep. He gives him rest. And I always, I always wonder, the Bible doesn't tell us how long he slept. And I just think if it were me, I'd be sleeping for a week. But he slept long enough that the angel had to give him two meals. And then God gives him exercise, air, and sunlight outside. And then he sends him away from his scenes of labor to the mountain of God for a spiritual retreat. Sometimes we need to walk away from our work. Sometimes we need relief from our stress and spiritual rejuvenation. God looked at Elijah and said, I can rebuke him. He does need some rebuking, and he's going to get some of that later. But he said, but that's not what he needs now. Sometimes when we ourselves find ourselves sitting by our drying brooks, struggling to make sense of what's up and down, wondering where God has been, perhaps the initial reaction should not be some spiritual rebuke or some spiritual message but perhaps we need to look at ourselves like God looks at us, as holistic individuals. To look at ourselves and say, maybe God needs to put us through a comprehensive health ministry program, a new start program, a depression, anxiety relief program, where we restore our health. And this reminds me of this passage in Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. This is exactly what God provided for Elijah. And, by the way, even when Elijah forgot to wait on the Lord. In his mercy, the Lord is able to give us strength. And sometimes he restores our strength and he lifts us up to mount up with wings as eagles, not through some miraculous means like you did with Elijah, but sometimes it's through the obeying of the natural laws of health. But nevertheless, Elijah needed to relearn what he had forgotten. He had to relearn how to wait. So for 40 days, the word of the Lord did not come to him again as he walked through the featureless desert to the mountain of God. And once there, what did God have to say to him? Once there, what was the lesson that God had in store? 1 Kings 19, verse 9 and 10. And there, and there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. 
You see, all through this experience, there was something rippling underneath the frustration and the stress Elijah was going through. Now that his energy was back, his health was back, he's rehydrated, he got his rest, his mind is clear and he's now distilling down what is his major objection. What was the issue that caused him so much pain and suffering and distress? It was that he was alone. There's no greater stress and no greater distress in the human experience than to be alone. In fact, God himself said of Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. And here Elijah was expressing the greatest fear, perhaps, that any human being can express, to be alone. No one understands what I've gone through. No one has suffered what I have suffered. No one has paid the price that I have paid. That's what Elijah is saying. And he's saying to God, it's enough. I can't take it anymore. And God has an answer to that objection. God has an answer to that, to Elijah, as well as to each one of us who may find ourselves isolated and alone. But before we can hear that answer, there's something that we must remember. And God tells Elijah this. Then he said, verse 11 of 1 Kings chapter 19. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. God had to remind Elijah of several things. Sometimes you have to endure and be patient before the answer will come. Your time sitting by the drying brook, that's just training for the winds that will blow, for the earthquakes that will come, for the fires that will rage. You were able to sit by the drying brook in order that you have built up the stamina and the patience to wait when the winds come and the earthquakes shake the earth and the, and the fires blow through. Because you see, God was telling Elijah something. God is saying, you <clears throat> need to remember that I am not in the wind of Jezebel's threats. I am not in the earthquake of the soldiers' footsteps coming after you. I am not in the fires of persecution that's raging after you. But if you had been patient to wait through all of those things, there is something you would have discovered. And what is that thing that you would have discovered? Verse 18, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. You see, God was trying to tell Elijah, if you had just waited for me, the revival would have taken place and you would have seen the 7,000 that you knew not of. You are not alone, Elijah. And in fact, if you want to take a step back, Elijah should have known that if Jezebel truly wanted him dead, 
Jezebel would have just sent an assassin or a sniper to take him out. Why send him a message? Elijah, I want you dead tomorrow. That was her message. I'm going to kill you in 24 hours. Meet me at such and such a place so I can take your head off your shoulders. She clearly did not intend to kill him. But Elijah would not stop long enough to wait. For you see, Jezebel was a shrewd political operator. She knew that if she had killed Elijah right then, she would have solidified his support within the population, and she would have lost the control of all of Israel. But she knew that she had to move him out of the way. And Elijah, unfortunately, was all too willing to oblige to step aside and allow Jezebel and Ahab to shore up, to re- uh, Restore the control upon the people. And what God is telling Elijah here at Mount Horeb is that the revival would have taken place if you had just stopped to wait for me. Through the drying brook, through the wind, through the earthquake, through the fires of persecution, you ought to wait. And this is the lesson for us today. The book Education, page 260, says this. Many even in their seasons of devotion, fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. They are in too great haste. With hurried steps, they press through the circle of Christ's loving presence, pausing perhaps a moment within the sacred precincts, but not waiting for counsel. They have no time to remain with the divine teacher. With their burdens, they return to their work. These workers can never attain the highest success until they learn the secret of strength. They must give themselves time to think, to pray, to wait upon God for a renewal of physical, mental, and spiritual power. The lesson of Elijah ought to be the lesson for us today. We ought to wait on God daily so that we might have the secret of strength. But you know... The story doesn't end there. We can take heart because Elijah's ministry continued. He regains his old courage. He is restored to his ministry. He relearns the the lesson of waiting on God. And in fact, God chose to end Elijah's earthly sojourn altogether. God takes Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind and he says, you don't have to wait anymore. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. His failure is similar to how we fail. And what this tells me is we can have a similar victory like he, like he did. Even more hopeful, in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus stands on the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples, we are told, behold, Moses and Elijah appear to them talking with him. The only two human beings that were sent back to encourage Jesus Before he goes through his darkest days, Elijah was one of them. What do you suppose Elijah said? As Jesus was about to enter a period in which all of his brooks dry up, when even the the presence of his father with which he had been won through the periods of eternity is about to withdraw his presence, what do you think Elijah told him? Elijah must have said, from experience, wait on the Lord. Don't 
be discouraged. You are not alone. You are not alone. And so, prophetically looking ahead, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 tells us, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Before the second coming of Jesus, there will be a group of people coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to accomplish the work that he did. And I venture to say, in order for them to come in that spirit and power, they must have the same training, the same discipline of waiting that Elijah had to go through. In fact, if I want to take a step back further, the entire Bible, all of the saints in Scripture had to learn this lesson, this lesson of waiting. The entire story of the Bible can be summarized into a sequence of people waiting and learning to wait. Adam and Eve waiting for the promised son to crush the head of the serpent. Noah waiting for the flood. Joseph, or Abraham rather, waiting for his promised son, Isaac. Joseph waiting as a slave in Egypt. Israel waiting centuries from deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Moses waiting 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. Israel waiting another 40 years wandering in the wilderness before entering Canaan. David waiting to be a king while Saul hunted his head. Daniel and his friends waiting for the end of the Babylonian captivity. Jesus waiting 30 years to begin his earthly ministry. Israel waiting through the entire Old Testament for the advent of the Messiah. And the church in the entire New Testament waiting for his second advent. And I would be remiss, I would be remiss to forget on October 22, that small group of Millerites waiting for October 22, 1844 for the Lord to come and cleanse the earthly sanctuary. And now the advent people, the people of the third angels waiting for that heavenly sanctuary to be cleansed. The story of the Bible is one of waiting. But perhaps more important than our waiting is his waiting. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, Jesus says. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is long-suffering toward us, meaning he's willing to wait for us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yes, we may be waiting for the Lord's return, but he is waiting for us to let him in to our hearts. He's waiting for us to be ready for his return. And so today, are you finding yourselves by a drying brook? Do you find yourself going through the discipline of waiting. Take heart because it is a necessary training by a loving father. And God's end time people are going to be characterized by this trait. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And he who endures to the end shall be saved. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it, until it receives the early and the latter rain, be also, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James 5, 7, and 8. And Hebrews 10, 
Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For you have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. So the appeal for us this morning is found in our scripture reading in Psalm 27, 14. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. How many of us today are willing to say, Lord, regardless of the drying brooks that I may need to stand beside, regardless of the threats that the Jezebels in my life may hurl my way, even if I have to stand alone, Give me strength. Give me endurance. Give me patience that I might wait on you. How many of you want to say, Lord, give me the strength to do that? God bless you. And in conclusion, our last verse, may one day soon we say together, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. The slide's not working, but that is the last slide. The Lord is coming soon, and may we be faithful to wait for him until that day. Let us pray together as we conclude. Father in heaven, we thank you for the story of Elijah and the secret of his strength. Lord, each day, may we be willing to wait for the word of the Lord. May we not be in such great haste that we rush out of your presence without instruction and guidance each morning. And Lord, if we find ourselves by the drying brooks of life, if there are Jezebels that threaten us in our experience, if we struggle with standing alone while we make dis difficult choices, give us the courage and the patience to wait on you so that you might strengthen our heart as you have promised. And Lord, may you truly one day come soon that we might say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. Bless us to this end and keep us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.